Hello? Okay, Joe, I've got the soundtrack to Heavy Metal. I know all the artists we're going to put on it. Oh, man, this is going to be so good. So you got Judas Priest, right? No. Uh, okay, what about Motorhead? Ooh, that that would have been a good idea. No. Uh, um, Iron Maiden? No. All right, well, well who, who, who do we got? Donald Fagan. The, the Steely Dan guy? Hey, steals a medal, right? Hello and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rockin' good time talking about all your favorite movie soundtracks. My name is Joseph Wade. I'll be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cudmore. Libby, what's going on? Oh, boy. This is a weird one. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But it's a good one because we have uh, two very special guests here sitting at my dining room table. Yeah, I mean, we always say the more the merrier, and, and we're going to put that to the test this week. <laughs> so with me, we have uh, my husband, Ian Austin, resident heavy metal expert. Say hi, Ian. Hello. Hi, Ian. And we also have uh, one of my best friends from college, laser disc expert, former canned laser podcast host, and the literal funniest person I've ever known in my whole life, Ian Smith. Ian, say hello to the good people. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. Long-time listener, first-time participant. Hi, also, Ian. <laughs> so, yeah, folks, tonight on the show, uh, we're going to really dive into just the the heavy metal landscape tonight because this week's film is, of course, the 1981 film Heavy Metal. Now, this is one that you've, Libby, you've really pulled out all the all the stops for. So what, what, what all do we have in store this week? We have a history of heavy metal. We have laser disc talk, and we have the actual whole soundtrack, which is oh man, a fucking lot. Let's take care of old business real yes. quick. This is going to be a real short one because last time on the show, uh, we discussed and watched and listened to the soundtrack to Teen Wolf Two. Once again, I apologize. <laughs> that was rough for everybody. I'm sorry. Yeah, it infected uh, my dreams. <laughs> I had a dream that I was at a party. And the Teen Wolf was there. It was Michael J. Fox, but he was in uh, the Teen Wolf 2 costume. And he was doing the Do You Love Me <laughs> bit, and no one was dancing. And so I felt really bad, so I danced with him. I got I to say, after that episode, the, the, uh, the real version of Do You Love Me followed me around for like a week. That's crazy. Like it was mad at me. So, hi. Hi. Uh... First, Ian here. Uh, I actually have something to add to this. I was at our local Salvation Army the other day, and there was a VHS copy of a movie, and the uh, the name is escaping me, but it was basically like a family discussion version of Teen Wolf, like if it was made by like those weird like Christian movie people. And it's about like, oh, there's a little boy and his best friend is a werewolf that plays basketball. And and should you uh, should you only be friends with someone because they're, you know, strange looking or they're good at basketball? Like there was discussion tips on the back of this box. So like there is a whole like 
weird extended universe of Teen Wolf out there in the VHS market if you care to look for it. Wait, so so wait a minute. So it's like a a how do we talk, how to talk about racism with your kids, but it, let's make fun of Teen Wolf while we're doing it. It's something along those lines. It's it's a like a family friendly movie production. Uh, and oh, it man. had like a, a a question guide on the back. Have you talked to your teen about Teen Wolf? Yeah. So if you want Teen Wolf without the boobs, there is an option for you. Good to know. Good to know. But yeah. So the poll for our Teen Wolf two episode. Uh, well, let's just jump right in. With forty four percent of the vote winning that poll was real life. Send me an angel. Really? Yeah. I'm disappointed. The- Clearly, neither one of us voted for that, even though I said I liked that song. Yeah. Uh, second, second place, Ongo Boingo's Who Do You Want to Be with 31%. It's a good song. It's a good song. Party Lights was uh, third place with 25%. Oh, Party Lights is so good. And ironically, with, with not a single vote, was uh, Ed Kepper's Not a Soul Around. It's not great. Not a soul around like that song. Oh, disappointing. <laughs> so. And now we have to talk about heavy metal. So Libby and and friends, take it away. All right. Turning this one over to Ian, our resident heavy metal expert. Okay. Hello. Uh, I make no claim that I'm an expert, but I am definitely experienced when it comes to heavy metal. So my first uh, experience with heavy metal was at a yard sale, uh, and I I can still see it. And uh, I found a stack of heavy metal magazines from 1980, uh, and my... uh, my father was convinced by me to buy me these magazines. I don't think he knew what they were, uh, but I did. Uh, I found the stack of them and I flipped a couple pages. I'm like, boobs, I'm buying this. <laughs> Dad, can I have like $5? And, uh, and I did. And, you know, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't take up the honorary space under the mattress. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they definitely... They definitely like crept around my room for a while um, and definitely <laughs> exposed me to some things that uh, my parents probably didn't know that I was being exposed to. But but but, but that being said, um, you know, it did say uh, adult fantasy magazine on the cover, so I can only be blamed for so much. Um <laughs> And and I and I went back to see if they had more after I went home and looked at these things and and unfortunately they had already sold they the rest sold of them. them to another pervert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, you know what? Is anyway. So okay, look, perviness aside, seeing these magazines was was an experience because um, you know it started uh, you know in in what seventy seven I believe. Um, and it had only recently come over to America uh, in the early 80s. And especially with those first issues, it was a lot of European artists and European comics. Um, and a lot of those were just, they had uh, a lot of uh, like style and ways of um, using different mediums that we just weren't seeing in uh, American comics. You know, you think of American comics as, you know, you know, a lot of red, white, and blue, uh, you know, basic color palettes, you know, little, uh, you know, color dot gradients. I mean, we kind of know that classic look, but, you know, 
pawing through these pages, I mean, there were ones that were illustrated in not just pen and ink, but watercolor and, you know, drafting pen and colored pencil. And, you know, these these were not sloppily done. Like they were, you know, yes, did they have mature themes? Absolutely. But um, there's just there's just sort of a different flavor to them. Uh, at least, at least the the older ones around the time that this movie came out, um, where they seem to not have the onset of uh, puritanic lechery that has kind of grown over the uh, the generations. Like, I mean, I, I've heard the phrase like it's 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 not porn, it's French, um, <laughs> you know. So. So, I mean, like looking through these things was was really cool because it was art that I'd never seen before in styles that I'd never seen before. Uh, so, I mean, I myself am an artist. I grew up, I, you know, was drawing all the time. Um, so like seeing this stuff was really neat. And, you know, especially as you sort of get into like the early 2000s, even even the mid uh, 1990s, um, which is when I could actually buy these things and not get carded. Uh you know the art tended to be muddier uh they uh, the art tended to be a lot more busier and um you know it tended to be a little more a little more pervy in a way like it sort of went from stories that happened to have nudity or sex in them to being like oh man look you know we're going to we're going to show this naked lady you know like there's just there's just a flavor in it that you can tell it just kind of makes you feel icky uh much in the same way that uh, watching this movie made me feel. But uh, anyway, so back in uh, 19, around 1975, uh, American publisher Leonard Mogul had gone to Paris uh, to shop a French edition of National Lampoon magazine. Uh, and there uh, on his trip, he had discovered a magazine called Metal Hurlant, or Hurlant, I think. Uh, which translates roughly as screaming or howling metal. Uh, and he thought it was, you know, it wasn't like anything he'd seen, so he was really interested in it. Uh, and he bought the license to uh, bring the translation to America. When he brought the translation to America, it was rebranded as heavy metal. Uh, and once it hit newsstands, it it kind of it definitely made some shockwaves because... Uh, at the time, uh, you know, we were sort of deep into the uh, American Comics Code, uh, which had, you know, just it prevented a lot of things from being shown or talked about uh, in any and all comic uh, in any and all comic books. But but here, all that went out the window, and largely that seemed to be because it was a a a translation of a pre-existing product so if they were creating new comics you had to adhere but since this already was something else you didn't these magazines you know they featured artists like the brothers hildebrandt manora mobius hr giger frank frazetta simon beasley uh you know these these were you know masters in the in the field um even if some of the americans weren't aware of them but i mean their their artwork graced the covers it you know filled the inside uh and it was pretty much unrestrained um at the time uh there was uh 
some some writers uh, of note, uh, including Dan O'Bannon, who was the writer of the Alien screenplay and Total Recall, uh, and actually Heavy Metal uh, even featured the uh, original uh, illustrated story of Alien as a serial in 1979 to correspond with the movie coming out. Um, it went through uh, a couple owners and iterations. Uh, so one of the one of the other people who was involved with um, heavy metal was Kevin Eastman of uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, he had become aware of the magazine and he really loved the sort of underground comic sensibilities and aesthetic of it. Uh, and he wanted to be a part of it. And eventually he ended up, uh, I think he either bought the rights or became one of the head guys there and he ran it for the longest time. Uh, and, uh, his wife, Julie Strain, uh, who was the model for, uh, uh, F-A-K-K squared and, and all that. Uh, she graced the cover many a times. Uh, so, I mean, that's simultaneously cool and kind of weird. Cause like, yeah, I got this wife and she'll be my warrior babe for you. Just put her on the cover. It's fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, and that's, it's, it's gone through a c- couple other ownerships. It's still going today. Um, I want to say it's in, it's like 40, 45th year or something like that. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's not the same as it was, but it's, it's kind of grown and changed with the times for better or for worse as, as far as I can tell. And, uh, you know, you can, you can still go in and buy it at, uh, Barnes and Noble. I know that, uh, around 1999, when I was of age to actually be able to go buy these things, uh, I bought mine at a cigar store of all places. Et cetera, et cetera? No, no, no. Uh, it was uh, Palace Cigar. This was an old school cigar store. And uh, I mean, it smelled of tobacco. It had a wooden Indian in the window. It was a staple of downtown. And later became a children's museum. Yes, yeah. So the the, the, the spots <laughs> where, uh, you know, the... the porno racks used to be became you know the the desk for uh you know doing collage with preschoolers it was it was really touching (laughs) but you know they had the big rack along the side and it was cool because like there was the rack and you could kind of see the wall behind the rack and there were these old frank frazetta prints uh that had been tacked to the wall for probably about 30 years um and i can still see and one of them was like you know a, a, a wizard like summoning some sort of monster out of the murk and and all that stuff. That's Merck, not Merkin. And uh, <laughs> and just like those were behind the rack that heavy metal was on. And I remember my dad used to smoke a pipe, so we would go in there a lot. And I would always kind of see these magazines because after that stack that I got at the yard sale, I was always kind of salivating about over them. And, and when I was able to go in there and kind of buy my own, I was like, hell yeah, this is great. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, they had all these special pages for, uh, uh, you know, all these just like really 
adult erotic comic. They were porn. They were porn comics. Um, <laughs> they were porn comics. Oh, and you could also buy these uh, these new things from Japan, uh, Japanese animation videotapes. Uh, absolutely not for children. And I have, uh, I still have a box full of all these heavy metal magazines. And I mean, there are ads in there for Akira and and all that kind of stuff coming out. So. Um, it's it's really uh, something that holds a, a a time and a place for me. Um, this movie, however, yeah, this movie, however, is a different matter. But we will get to that. Yeah, we'll get there. All right, thanks for that. Now, um, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, I invited Ian Smith up here uh, is one because, as I said, he's the funniest person I've ever known, and also he's a Steely Dan fan, and. More than that, it's because he has a laser disc player, <laughs> and he had heavy metal on laser disc. So I believe first time we've ever done an OST party on laser disc. So with a brief history of laser discs and heavy metal on laser disc, Ian Smith. So my history with the laser disc copy of heavy metal actually originates with this podcast. Um, I was thinking of. Uh, a movie to submit as a suggestion for the future. And I, I found the Venn diagram of Steely Dan and laser discs and movies that I might possibly want to watch. And it was just this movie. <laughs> uh, so that was, not Oh, maybe next time. <laughs> so uh, just a quick overview of laser disc for anyone who's interested. Um, laser disc actually predates VHS by a little bit, making it to the market in the late seventies. And they were uh, competitors after a fashion, but uh, VHS was always much more successful in the marketplace just because it was cheaper to manufacture and it was basically it was easier to make porn and uh, <laughs> duplicate it cheaply on VHS than pressing a laser disc. And just as a physical medium, a laser disc is about the same size as an LP. It's a 12 inch, looks like a giant CD. Um, the video quality is not tremendous but it's about twice as good as a vhs tape and the audio quality is what really sets it apart in that you could have uh, a much clearer audio and later on uh, some of the versions even came with like digital audio and that sort of thing so there is um there's something to be said for it uh and one of the biggest strengths and something that kept it alive for a lot longer than you know it might otherwise have been the case is that it was popular for karaoke because you could skip through tracks just like you could with a CD, which you couldn't really do with a VHS tape. And um, one thing we encountered today trying to actually watch the movie on my Laserdisc player is uh, I have an, an ancient old commercial karaoke Laserdisc player. And it kept trying to skip between tracks and have us play karaoke instead of watching the movie. So that was uh, that was something we had to work around. But... Yeah, overall, it's just kind of a fun medium to collect because most laser discs, unless they're extremely rare, are very cheap, and it's just kind of fun. They're almost like vinyl in the sense that you get large boxes and you can take a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, extra material that's in there as far as gatefold stuff, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, overall, this this movie was an interesting one to get, and um, from what I understand, this goes back to the Kevin Eastman connection. The movie itself didn't get a home video release until 1996, which was, I believe, 15 years after it came out in theaters. 
So uh, like the copy on Laserdisc that I have was from 1996, and that's that's the first time it was really available as anything other than like a bootleg kind of video. So um, I guess it was a lot of licensing concerns for the the music, and just bringing it all together was something that uh, Kevin Eastman was pivotal to. So thanks again, Kevin Eastman. Yeah, that's that's kind of the overview of the Laserdisc aspect. How much did you pay for this one? Uh, it was something south of fifteen dollars. <laughs> I don't know if that was with or without shipping, but this it, it was not a princely sum. That sounds about right. Yeah, no, I was like, I, I'm a bit of a bit of a fan of of Laserdisc as well. Like when we did our episode on uh, nine and a half weeks, I found a, a Laserdisc copy to watch because I thought that seems like the scuzziest way possible to watch nine and a half weeks. <laughs> But I guess that's where I come in because, yeah, when, when the movie came out, out on physical media in uh, 96, that's when my dad got a copy of this movie and tried like hell to get me to watch it with him. I can think of nothing worse than watching heavy metal with your dad. Yeah, and apparently this was one that he enjoyed, you know, when he was a young, uh, you know, a young guy in the 80s. And he thought, like, hey, maybe it's time to get my son into this. This is like his version of like trying to share porn with me, which is already like and weird, but it's heavy metal. And I remember very clearly watching the first like five minutes of this on on VHS and going, Dad, what is this? I don't understand it. I'm going to go play video games. Yeah, I mean, there are there are sequences there are sequences in this movie which are the animated equivalent of watching your parents bone. Like yes. it is just not comfy to watch, especially <laughs> with any sort of parental unit in the room. And as I found out uh, with your wife or anybody else in the room, <laughs> this is a, this is one of those rare movies that I'm almost embarrassed to watch even when I'm alone. Yeah, like I felt I was watching this on my own late at night and just thinking like, should I be watching this? Am I old enough for this? Oh, God, you didn't show this to Nikki, did you? Oh, no, no, no. I knew good and well that 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 was that dog was not going to (laughs) hunt. But I do still have that VHS that my dad you know, tried in vain to get me to watch. I'm holding it in my hand right now. Oh, that's beautiful. I've kept it for all these years and it's just taunting me. I uh... (laughs) am. Christ. Uh, I've actually never seen this until today. I had heard about it, and I saw it a lot advertised in the Entertainment Earth catalog, which I devoured much the way a teen boy would devour pornography. Um, and it was one I, I like I said, I'd never been able to find. I saw part of it. Ian and I went to uh, Criff Dogs in New York City, just off St. Mark's. And it was playing on <laughs> on a uh, TV in the corner above the phone booth that leads to the Criff Dog Speakeasy. Hey. And I remember Ian being like, oh, hey, that's heavy metal. And we talked about it then. Um, and I watched the Harry Canyon sequence, I think on YouTube, uh, when I covered uh, Cheap Christmas for Record Saturday, because, uh, of course, True Companion. I. Uh, but that was my only experience with heavy metal, other than knowing that it was a weird, dumb movie that uh, my husband had. So actually, when I found out that he had a copy, I was kind of surprised. How much did you pay for your copy, Ian? Uh, I paid somewhere south of a dollar. I think I paid <laughs> 99 cents for it, which is about right. It's uh, it's <laughs> any more and I would feel guilty and any less... I would still feel guilty. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. 
Do you have any billboarding school for this? Oh, hell yes, I do. Thank you for reminding me. Billboarding school where I take a look at the charts and I, I read you stats and numbers because I think they're interesting. Uh, so, yeah, the album for Heavy Metal came out in July of 1981. It hit the charts August 8th at number 84. The top album on the charts that week was the Moody Blues Long Distance Voyager album. Okay. Had never heard of that before. It's awesome. Uh, okay, good. Good to know. The, the top soundtracks that week, I picked, there's there's three, and they're all right in a row. Uh, at number 61, it's the soundtrack to Endless Love. I don't know what that is. Uh, uh, let's skip it. Just ahead of uh, John Williams' score for Raiders of the Lost Ark at 62, which itself was just ahead of The Great Muppet Caper at 65. <gasps> the Great Muppet Caper! Please see our yeah. episode on The Muppets. Yeah. More on The Great Muppet Caper. So... Heavy metal peaked at number 12, lasted 28 weeks on the charts. That's what? Uh, that's a good seven months. Yeah. A long ass time. It's got something for everyone. It kind of does. Uh, fell off the charts in February of, of 1982. The number one album that week was the Jay Giles Band's Freeze Frame, uh, which, you know, okay. good pick. Top soundtrack at number 33 was Vangelis' score for Chariots of Fire. Like that was the era Gross. when scores were big on soundtracks. But uh, yeah, then there's then there's heavy metal, which is wall to wall um, classic rock that's not necessarily heavy metal. There's very little actual metal on this soundtrack, and especially when we think of metal as defined as you know big power chords, lyrics about Satan, you know, very very loud guitars competing with very thrust forward vocals. There's maybe two songs on here, maybe. Yeah, I'd say two or three. There's two or three. A lot of them sound the same, too. Yes. And uh, most of what we're going to hear on this would really fall under hard rock. And heavy metal was still being sort of determined. I mean, now we definitely think of a very specific type of metal. We definitely think of Black Sabbath as metal, but maybe not Blue Oyster Cult. But at that at that time, that was what was considered metal. Right. Yeah. So, but uh, there was no way that Don Felder was ever going to be metal, no matter how fucking hard he tried. No. It's just not going to happen. No. There's very little on here you can headbang to. I think it comes down to, can you headbang to it? No. Then it's not metal. Basically. Uh, we're going to go through this, the movie. It's it's a series of, of several little vignettes with, with a couple of songs kind of planted in between each one, right? All right. Well, yeah, the, the film, it it's... You know, produced by Ivan Reitman, co a lot of the sequences were co-written by Dan O'Bannon, and it features most of the cast of SCTV uh, doing voice work. But not Catherine O'Hara. Definitely not Catherine O'Hara, no, which is, which is uh, yeah, disappointing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we start off with the sequence called Soft Landing, which is, the, the, again, the only part that I remember seeing as a child. And the only part uh, any child <laughs> the should see. The only part see. that doesn't have tits everywhere. I know. And even that, like, just did not interest me as a child. <laughs> so this starts off with uh, the band Riggs doing the song Radar Rider. Let's go to a clip. stood out for me about this section is that well for one thing the rotoscoped corvette falling out of a space shuttle was really awesome and i enjoyed looking at that but uh the song 
in a vacuum, just listening to that on my computer, it was not very compelling. But when it was taken as more of like the score of the scene than just a song on its own, I thought it fit pretty well. So I had never heard of Riggs before. And after this, I'll probably never hear Riggs ever again. But um, yeah, I kind of enjoyed that intro. Yeah. They are featured very prominently on this soundtrack. We get two uh, Riggs songs. Now, Riggs is uh, guitarist Jerry Riggs, and the band was originally called Raggedy Ooh. Ann. But when uh, the frontman, Don Train, left, they became Riggs, which is a slightly less stupid name. Uh, but only slightly. Yes. They had two songs here, and their self-titled debut album came out uh, on the Full Moon label, which co-produced this album with Electra Asylum. Um, and then they were never heard from again. Oh. Yeah, he still plays around, uh, Pat Travers Group and others, but um, they they did not really uh, go anywhere. Apparently their biggest hit was a song called Ready or Not, and I looked into it and it is that was not covered by the Fugees about 10 years later. <laughs> so watching this guy enter the atmosphere flaming is sort of a representation of, of their uh, professional career in a way. Okay. <laughs> But um, and also it should be noted that um, when when Elon Musk launched the the astronaut in, in his stupid Tesla car into space, this was very much the the image that he had in his mind. <laughs> we all made the same yeah. joke. I'm... No, I I think that's actually true. Yeah, no, oh, it's not even a joke. That no, I did. Yeah. Apparently, he was a huge fan of this movie, which tells you everything you need to know. Of course, he was. Holy shit. That depresses me so much. I don't even want to do this anymore. I'm just going to go lay down on the couch. Oh, my God. Elon Musk possesses the Lochnar. We have to go after him. That explains him. everything. Yeah. Doesn't it, though? It kind of does. I think the Lochnar is crimes. Oh, that's so mean. It's probably true. <laughs> I think she thinks she's Tarna. Like, she just walks around the house thinking she's Tarna. He dumped her when he realized she wasn't. Yeah. I'm... I will say, uh, and this is something that Ian uh, has mentioned numerous times throughout our watching, um, it does have this very weird sort of boneless animation that lacks a sense of gravity, especially in the boob region. Um, it kind of r- reminds me, it's like the worst traits of Don Bluth and Ralph Bakshi, our good friend Ralph yeah. Cool World Bakshi. Yeah, it's got a very, like thrift store ralph bakshi kind of yeah. vibe to it sort of gelatinous um so that and that starts right off the bat right away and that leads straight into the, the second sequence which is called grimaldi oh, okay. where we actually kind of meet the Lochnar in person sort of yeah this is uh, this is after they've land you know he's landed a car after free falling from space and I, I don't know if you caught it, but the car hits the ground and then he deploys the the uh, the parachute. Yeah. So then he like drives off to this mansion out in the middle of the Australian outback, I guess, where he comes home to his daughter. And like he brings her this present from outer space, which is like, surprise, I brought you something. It's supreme evil. Yeah, and it starts it, it it kills him immediately and starts like showing her these horrible visions. And that's when it occurred to me that oh, I get it. This is creep show for fa- for f- fucking fantasy nerds. 
Yeah, and it's like, I don't know, just the way the ball's kind of like hovering around, you're just like, is this going to get, like, molesty? Like, it's very uncomfy to watch, and, you know, it's like, ultimately, this ball is not just forcing this girl to watch this movie. It's forcing all of us to watch this movie, which really sells why it's the supreme evil in the universe, because... Damn it, we don't deserve this. <laughs> I mean, we do, but I mean, we personally don't, but we as a society do. <laughs> but yeah, so like the next sequence involves what I can only describe as like space construction workers digging around in the dirt and then they find the the Lochnar again. Kind I, again, I'm I'm saying this a lot kind of because I'm not entirely sure what's going on. Yes, it is the Lochnar. It is if the it's Lachnar. a green glowing orb, it's the Lochnar. Right. Which is very stupid to say, and I don't like it. This sequence gets us to the next song on the soundtrack, which is Blue Oyster Cult's Veteran of the Psychic Wars. Let's go to a clip. Let's do it. And fall too old to see All the scars are on the inside I'm not sure that there's anything left to me This is like that the kind of like weirdo 80s space metal that influenced everything from like the darkness to Deltron 3030 to fill in the blank for me, please. Yeah, I well, yeah, it's just that sort of weird sci-fi tinged uh, 80s, early 80s metal. But there's actually kind of a surprising story behind this. Oh, uh, really? Yes. In that this song was not originally supposed to be on the soundtrack. It appears on their album Fire of Unknown Origin, uh, which came out at the same time, uh, June, and, uh, June of 1981 to July 1981, uh, with this. Um, they had actually written a song called Vengeance, the plot, for use in the Tarna sequence that closes the film. And they decided not to use it because it understood the assignment too well. To the part where it describes the plot in great detail using quotes from the film. <laughs> it's amazing. But it also, it, they went ahead and put it on the album and they put it as the B-side to Burnin' For You, which became their uh, their biggest hit. It was, uh, it was number one on the new Billboard Tracks chart where it stayed for two weeks and then remained on the chart for another 21 weeks. So if you think so people of, like definitely heard that song yes. back in the day. Yes, indeed. Whereas this one was not released as a single. No. no. And it just it languished on this soundtrack that was also very popular. Yeah. Inexplicably popular. <laughs> Although it was later used in an episode of Supernatural. Oh, okay. About. Also inexplicably popular. <laughs> My hot take on Veteran of the Psychic Wars is I I enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of prog rocky and and good on its own, even outside of the movie. Worked in the movie. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it works. It works for the scene. Like I'm not gonna say it doesn't. It's yeah. Just, it, I, you listen to the lyrics on their own, and you're like, okay, guys, yeah. calm down a bit. Yeah, that's a that's a Blue Oyster Cult song, all right. Yep. Oh, I'm. I just. I kind of wish they'd kept Vengeance. Because it yeah, went. That's fair. Everybody else on this 
like went to Wikipedia and these guys presented a just doctoral thesis on heavy metal. And they're like, no, it's too good. And I mean, oh, if, if there was going to be a place for vengeance in this movie, it would have been a great song over the credits. Because by then, we've already seen the sequence. It wouldn't be giving anything away, and it would just, like, you know, rehash everything. I mean, the song that plays over the credits seems very strangely placed as it is, but I would have gone with Vengeance. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where the, the in-credits movie rap goes, so just put it at the end of the movie. <laughs> but then this fades us into our next sequence, which is called Corbindale, I mean, Harry Canyon, <laughs> which is about a cab driver in new york city in the year 2031 and he comes across a young woman who is in who is in possession of or knows the the whereabouts of the loch Nahr, and she is being hunted by mob bosses i mean this guy is really just animated harry Picar from american splendor it's like <laughs> this guy is just He's just so underwhelmed and annoyed and bored with everything. And it's just like, just like, why, why are we following this character? It's just, I don't know this, I, this one, I just don't feel like lands and it's just, yeah, it's just not great. It's just not great. And again, and again, we have this like really strange animation where they're using like really tiny little stipple effects for all the lines, which kind of, you know, and it's really hard to have stipple be the same from frame to frame. So it, you know, the, the details are constantly fluctuating on the characters. And again, you're experiencing this weird kind of anti-gravity kind of floaty movement that the characters have. It's like they're animated in such a way where they look, like they're supposed to be realistic looking, but they don't move in realistic ways, which makes it really, really distracting. It's just, I don't know this. I mean, we got, we got what nine years to figure out if this is going to be legit or not until it's uh 2031. But, uh, I don't know. And, and also, uh, the, the button that he has that like vaporizes his, uh, his, his trouble passengers, you know, it's like, apparently it just vaporizes men straight out. But when he like, you know, vaporizes the girl, it like vaporizes her clothes off. We get to see her naked and then vaporizes her. It's like, this is one of those stories that just doesn't, I mean, it's just fraught with sexism and is very uncomfortable. And it just, I, I don't, this has not aged well, in my opinion, this one. No, and the thing that, like, I alluded to it earlier, but the thing that kept nagging at me in the back of my mind watching this is this is definitely the sequence that inspired the fifth element. And watching this, like, it's it just made me sour on the fifth element that much more. Like, oh, God, this really is it, isn't it? Yeah, I I did look at that cab driver and think, like, that should have been Bruce Willis. It's pretty terrible. But like, yeah, like the the girl in the cab with like the thing that's going to save or destroy the universe. Like, yeah, that's that's fifth element. Like, that's him. And yeah, it's not my favorite. None of this is my favorite. <laughs> well, <laughs> one of, one of the things is my favorite. What's that? The song that's playing at the top is Donald Fagan's True Companion. Hey. Let's go to a clip. Woo! <laughs> 
we actually spent all afternoon trying to dissect this one. Okay. Uh, but a little a little history on Donald J. Fagan of Steely Dan. Uh, by 1981, uh, Steely Dan had, in fact, called it quits following the, frankly, disastrous recording of Gaucho between Walter Becker's lawsuits and growing drug addictions and the erasure of the tapes for the second arrangement. It's a wonder that album got produced at all. And so when the band called it quits, I think no one was all that surprised. But Donald Fagan had already gotten back in the studio, which again, given his last experience in the studio, is a fucking wonder. And produced this uh, mostly instrumental track for this album. Uh, and then la- shortly after this, uh, this came out, he was back in the studio recording The Nightfly which uh, was the most popular of his solo albums. And now, uh, Steely Dan actually does have a lot in common with heavy metal, in that both uh, the term heavy metal and the name Steely Dan come from William S. Burroughs. Really? Yes. Um, There is a kid called the Heavy Metal Kid in one of his stories, and of course a Steely Dan is a steam-powered dildo that appears in Naked Lunch. So weirdly, this makes sense. It's a long fucking walk, but it makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Um, but with this track, we, uh, Ian Smith and I spent the afternoon trying to dissect what this track sounds like. No, what we realized after going through more or less the entire Steely Dan catalog, I thought it might be um, here at the Western World or Asia. Uh, it's Third World Man from Gaucho. So uh, why don't you go ahead and, and play a little clip from that. Chinese playroom is a bunker filled with sand. He's become a third world man. And then, um, yeah, play True Companion again. They sound they they draw very much uh from it. And the there's something about the sort of smooth highway drive, vaguely futuristic, that you'll hear later on Comicuriad, especially in tracks like Snowbound, which he co-wrote with Walter Becker. So um this I think really stayed in, in Donald Fagan's mind and deeply influenced him. So what was your joke? Wow. Oh no! I heard I heard this, and all I could think of was, "Oh no! It's time for weather on the ones on the Weather Channel." <laughs> that's that's fair. Uh, we were listening to it um, while making snacks, and it's definitely elevator music. This is this is. I mean, it's in like a glass elevator that takes you up to like the six hundredth floor, like through the clouds. But this is elevator music. This is this is the music that plays in the uh, time traveling elevator in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Yeah, this sequence actually was one of the ones that had the most music um, because when he takes this woman that he's just picked up in the cab to the cop house, um, we get uh, Stevie Nicks with Blue Lamp. Yeah, let's go to a clip.
might be in the minority here, but I think this is the best song on the entire soundtrack. And I'd never heard it before listening to the soundtrack for this podcast. And I'm glad that I experienced it. Uh, I don't know that it really adds anything to the scene. I guess he's walking past uh, a bunch of people who are waiting to be processed in the the police station prostitutes and they all take out their panties yes yeah (laughs) yeah i was i was dancing around that but yep (laughs) but yeah stevie nicks i think she was probably a very smart addition to the soundtrack from a business standpoint because in 1981 she was like large and in charge so yeah she was a hot commodity at this point (laughs) oh i'm yeah and this uh it's pure uncut stevie nicks i mean there are no baby laxatives in this one um but it's got like a little bit of a contemporary edge it's not quite like 80s studio polished uh there's a little bit of that but it's not like glaringly so it's just like a little bit to kind of soften up the edges it's it's about as far away from actual heavy metal as this album gets too well yeah but they uh, had they had to get like a lady on there no i i know and i agree (laughs) but like i'm not saying it's a bad thing i'm not saying it's a bad thing at all i actually enjoyed this one a lot yeah it's just it is very weird that they're like they list all of them they're like oh shit and stevie nicks yeah i guess we better get some broads in there like joan jett no come on who else you got yeah like what are we gonna get heart no um we were talking earlier kind of surprised they didn't get blondie because uh as ian austin informed me uh debbie harry posed for a cover of heavy metal during her uh geiger photo shoots oh so they definitely like would have had an end with blondie at least so it may have been later but um in 1981 you know blondie was a hot band and she would have been yeah. great she would have yeah, been very absolutely. very good in this but you had to make room for two Riggs songs. <laughs> and also the next song on our soundtrack, which like if, if there's going to be a, a radio hit on here, it might as well be a journey song, I guess. <laughs> really? <Does it laughs> I have don't to know. Be? Yeah. Cause this was 1981 and, and you couldn't get away from journey. You still can't get away from journey. So ladies and gentlemen, here's open arms. Let's do it. If I, if I never hear a Journey song for the rest of my life, it'll be too soon. <laughs> and that's crazy because this was their biggest hit. This was bigger than Don't Stop Believing." This is why this album was on the charts for seven months. <laughs> Christ almighty. Yeah, and this is playing in Harry's apartment. And when you look around his garbage apartment, you're like, yeah, this dude listens to Journey. <laughs> this dude listens to Journey, but it's only to pick up chicks. <laughs> my God. And, oh, it's really terrible this song is terrible it i'm sorry you can't have a song on the heavy metal soundtrack that can be recorded by barry manilow if your song can be recorded by barry manilow and celine dion it is not heavy metal in fact a 1981 review of their album escape on which this is featured um deborah frost uh coined them as heavy metal posers and that tracks Oh, one hundred thousand percent. Are you really yes. going to tell me that this belongs alongside like veteran of the psychic wars? Are you going to look me in the goddamn eyes and tell me that? <laughs> look me in the eye, Steve Perry. 
Nobody who went to see this movie in 1981, my dad included, gave two solid shits about Journey. I know. Can you just imagine just like being in that theater and be like, yeah, look at those tits. Wait, what is this? Is this Journey? What the fuck? What am I doing here? You can't masturbate to Journey. But to be fair, VH1 did name this the number one power ballad of all time. Yeah, but they're VH1. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I would say there's there's like maybe Bonnie Tyler should be headed <laughs> there. Is yeah. anybody? <laughs> At least. Smash Mouth? <laughs> what? How dare you? How dare you bring Steve Smash Mouth into this? Somebody had to. <laughs> Somebody once told him. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, this song playing in Harry's apartment uh, makes this girl who apparently the heavy metal wiki has dubbed what? Feminine? The girl. Yeah, the girl. It makes her strip down and have sex with him. She's so taken by his Journey album collection. That, that's the thing. He doesn't make her do anything. She just gets in his bed and initiates it herself. It's which the is power even of Journey. Well, even crazier. To be fair, I am on the uh, the heavy metal wiki right now, and it says her preferred weapon is feminine wiles. So she knew exactly <laughs> what she was doing. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It it turns out that yeah, she's uh she's no good because eventually Harry has to kill her. Mm-hmm. He calls her a two day ride with one hell of a tip. <laughs> and wait, where does um heartbeat appear? That? Yeah, that's that's the last song in in this uh, sequence. Okay, uh, heartbeat appears as um, uh, they're being they're being chased. Yes, uh, by the 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 mob guys to and, get to the Statue of Liberty. Yes, and this is our uh, last Riggs song, our second and last Riggs song. Uh, we should yeah. we should go to a clip of this because it actually just, is like a good chase. It's good chase sequence music. Oh yeah, let's do it. The one note that I wrote for this said, this sounds like it could have either been written by ACDC or Queen or maybe both. Yeah. It's not to be confused with the Don Johnson song, Heartbeat. No, uh, absolutely not. Which, uh, yeah, this is, it's just your standard 80s power rock riff. Uh, you could put this in School of Rock or Teen Wolf 2 and no one would notice. Yeah, this is real rock music right here. Yeah, everybody. you can just picture a wolf boxing to this, can't you? Mm-hmm. Um, there is a line... <laughs> Uh, that says, get out your stethoscope and make me a man. Now, fun fact, the backmasking reveals that he says, now cough. <laughs> oh, man. I love Not putting... really. I just made that up. You bastard. I was so happy for a second. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, a proctology joke. I you should for know sure better that than if I, say, if I have a fact that sounds too awesome, I'm making it up. You should know that by now. This is stupid 80s butt rock. Nothing is off the table right That's now. That's fair. Um, so we skip over the sequence called Den. It's, it's about uh, this kid, this 18-year-old kid voiced by John Candy, who finds the Loch Nahr, and it transports him into t- like through time and space into this other world where he is now like this giant, hulking, muscly hero character. And he saves um, a, a young woman from being sacrificed by an evil space queen. A nude woman. And, 
saves a nude woman from a nude space queen. <laughs> and of course he has sex with both of them. Yes, and they are very nude. It's just there's a lot of nipples. This this sequence is actually uh one of the things they really had to work at to uh, have the movie be rated R. Uh, because this sequence, I mean, pretty much every sequence in the movie, uh, save the Lochnar glowing orb and the Tarna sequence, uh, are taken directly from uh, illustrated stories that had appeared in the magazine. So this den sequence it was actually a multiple part serial that had appeared in some of the earliest issues, and it was uh, drawn by Simon Beasley. Um, and in that story, uh, both the characters of uh, Den and Catherine and everyone else are walking around butt naked. And they absolutely make the point of saying like, oh, you know, it is comfortable to be naked in this world and there are no taboos and everything else. So so even though you can have like titties everywhere in this movie, like, you know, having like a grown dude walking around with his is his penis hanging out would have to wait until uh, until Watchmen came out. Well, yeah. yeah, he can't just walk around with his dork hanging out. <laughs> his dork, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, like I, yeah, and I, and I buy that this was like one of the original, not original, but like, you know what I mean. I buy that this was one of the ones that they took from the heavy metal comics because this is another one that just feels like some kind of old school like sci-fi story like this feels like the inspiration for that video game out of this world see I, if out it, of this world had more titties in it yeah or uh like the gore like outlaw of gore yeah 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 exactly something like something about this feels very like primordial science fiction to me yeah i mean this this is really just like you know teen white knighting to extreme oh. Yeah. Uh, you know, combined with, uh, you know, your first foray into Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but but that being said, I, that is one of the parts that I do like about this is that, you know, you have something like Conan where you have a mm. big muscle bound dude who, you know, can get any woman he wants and is ripping people apart. But, you know, boys like to fantasize that they're him, but they're not. They're this clown because right. this guy is the big muscle bound dude, but he's still got the mentality of the 14 year old. You know, he's like, yeah. you know, wow, this is cool. Like, you know, and, and there is something very honest about that, which I, I, I do find kind of endearing and very hilarious because this is an embarrassing thing to watch on its own, but I think by keeping the character as a child in a barbarian's body, I don't know. It it adds something. Like the spirit of it at least comes across. Yes. Um uh, it would have been nice to hear Beavis and Butthead riff this. Cause all I could think of was like, oh, look at her thingies. Did I just I score? do love the line that he says near the end. After he after he has sex with uh, I guess the queen and he says wow nothing for eighteen years and now twice in one day <laughs> yeah so what happens when you come in thirty seconds yeah. they they know who their audience is oh yeah yeah that's that's like d directly aimed at you know that kid specifically <laughs> but let's jump ahead to Captain Stern where we get the next song in our sequence so who wants to talk about Captain Stern. I kind of like this one where he 
Uh, a man is accused of like a lot of crimes, like Jeffrey Epstein level crimes, and uh, hires uh, a nebbish little nerd named what's his name again? Oh yeah, Hanover Fist. Na- okay, named Hanover Fist to basically create a distraction. Uh, and Hanover Fist is using the Lochnar like a marble and goes crazy, chases Captain Stern through the uh, through the spaceship, eventually allowing him to escape. Uh, and of course, the Lochnar always comes due. And I don't really see the Lochnar as evil a lot of times so much as that it just makes people uh, commit to their true selves, you know. Like money or vodka. <laughs> and, uh, you know, his greed is what's evil, not the, the Lochnar. Uh, but, of course, Captain Stern goes back on the deal and jettisons him into space. Um, but uh, during the Rampage sequence, we have Cheap Tricks uh, reach out. So let's go to a clip. Reach out and take it. I, I liked this one, but it it constantly kept threatening to turn into a Cars song. <laughs> like, I wanted this to be a Cars song so bad. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> yeah, this was a weird one because it, it felt like it could have been a really great song. It's just the chorus never really took off for me. I mean, maybe if I listen to another 30 or 40 times, I'll be like, oh, yeah, reach out. That's a real great song. But, um, yeah, no, yeah, the segment itself was... It's interesting. I the good double cross at the end was kind of funny. Yeah, um, with this song, it does not fit during a chase sequence where a large, muscly monster is punching holes in things. Uh, it should be playing over the All Valley Karate Tournament. <laughs> yeah. Because it's just like, reach out, like, follow your dreams of punching holes in a spaceship, I guess. I don't know. It was very weird. Um, but we've got a, actually a little crossover here with, uh, with Cheap Trick with the Shattered Shield podcast. In that uh, Cheap Trick hails from the same hometown as S.H.I.E.L.D. creator Sean Ryan. Uh, both hail from Rockford, Illinois. And those of you who follow me on Twitter probably saw that I did the heavy metal soundtrack uh, for our Halloween spin over on Record Saturday. And I mentioned this and Sean Ryan, uh, gentleman that he is, replied with a photo of himself and Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick. Uh, hanging out when Sean Ryan was a teenager. So nice. They're very well known over there. So, uh, so that was fun. And you can we'll put the picture of me as Tarna in the show notes. Absolutely. As well as yeah. the picture of uh of Sean Ryan and Rick Nelson. So excellent. So this sequence is kind of cool because um the 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 comic that this particular sequence is based on was in one of the issues that I picked up at that yard sale. So it was. I mean, I it's been ingrained in my head for so long, and it was really kind of interesting to see it uh, animated. I I, I kind of describe him as looking like uh, a proto American dad who happens to be voiced by the dad from American Pie. Um, but the one the one key difference in this is that the comic actually ends uh, when uh, Captain Stern pays him off. 
It's just like, oh, here's the money. Thanks for, you know, smashing holes in this space station to get me off. Like, and that's sort of the end of it. But he never jettisoned him into, he never jettisoned a hand over fist into space. Uh, that part was added uh, merely as a connector for the, the glowing orb to get down to the next planet. But, you know, we had a conversation following the movie and we actually felt that it strengthened the story. So, you know, nothing, nothing, a nothing a flaming hand can't fix. <laughs> yeah. Like the Lochnar, like it, 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 basically tempts people to do their to do the worst thing imaginable and that's that's right up there yeah. so it makes perfect sense um i wanted to point out and i should have pointed this out on true companion there were five singles released from this oh um, wow yes uh true companion was one uh the b-side of that was don felder's uh all of you which we'll talk about later uh this was also a single uh, the B-side was their, the other song on this soundtrack, which is uh, I Must Be Dreaming. Don Felder's Taken a Ride and All of You got a single. Sammy Hagar's Heavy Metal and Devo's Working in the Coal Mine all were released as singles from this movie. Wow. This was a powerhouse of an album. It weird sure as was. it is, it is. And we haven't even gotten to like full weird, full weirdness yet. Oh, no. No, we're, we're just getting warmed up. Uh, however, this song was the only one of them that failed to chart. Ah, that's a shame. Yes. Well, that leads us into our next sequence, which is called B-17, which is uh, based on a story by Dan O'Bannon. And knowing that he's also the uh, creator of Return of the Living Dead, I I 100% see that in this. So not not only that, but... this this story was actually expanded into a comic book called Cold Dead War, which oh, was wow. written by George C. Romero, son of that George Romero. Wow. I mean, Even zombies on a World War II plane, that is, it writes itself. Like, yeah, yes, please, and thank you. Yeah, especially in the hands of those guys. Yes, please. Yeah, Absolutely. But yeah, like the you get a World War Two uh, plane, all the the whole crew except for the pilots gets shot and killed. The Lochnar turns them all into zombies, and Rude, the but zombies, okay. <laughs> like you do, uh, yeah, the zombies take over the ship. The pilot ejects and parachutes onto a tropical island, where the island is full of zombie uh, zombie airmen and crashed airplanes. So this has happened a lot, but also all of this takes place to the tune of. Don Felder's heavy metal, Take a Ride. Let's go to a clip. Not to be confused with Sammy Hagar's heavy metal. Also on this soundtrack. Which we will get to. Yes. This was uh, Felder's only chart hit at number 43. Aw, poor guy. Yeah. It has Don Henley on vocal backing vocals, which means I automatically hate it uh, because it is dumb and bad. Before reading up on who was doing each track, like I didn't already know this was Don Felder, but as soon as I heard it start, I was like, oh man, that's an Eagles song, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's not bad, but it just oozes like, hey, ladies, come check out my car. Yeah. There's a... <laughs> there's a line like take a ride on heavy metal okay for starters i think we can agree that this is 100 percent not metal that open arms is more metal than this that the celine dion version of open arms is more metal than this 
But uh, it makes it sound, honestly, like the theme to a VHS film about uh, like a truck race that <laughs> like an aging Burt Reynolds has to like compete in this truck race. And this is the theme song, and the film is called Heavy Metal Taking a Ride. It's the theme song to trucks, not maximum overdrive, but trucks. Yeah, it just, <laughs> I I want to think of this song in my head so that I can hear it, and instead I just hear Eastbound and Down, which is a far better song. Yeah, then I think about Eastbound and Down. Yeah, then I think about Danny McBride, and then I think that The Righteous Gemstones is coming back in January, and then I think about Misbehaving, and it just all goes from there. It's a Hell long yeah. Yeah, this song is stupid. Any final thoughts on, on B-17 before we move on? I guess my only thought would be that I believe there was a deleted segment in between B-17 and the preceding section, the, uh, the Captain Stern section, right? That was Neverwhere Land, and that was just uh, something that was a final, like a, a bonus feature that they put at the end of the VHS tape and at the very end of the Laserdisc. It was uh, an unfinished segment that was... I don't think they had any music specifically created for it, but it was set to the intro to Time by Pink Floyd. Oh, okay. The Venn diagram of dudes that like Pink Floyd and dudes that like heavy metal is a flat circle. And there's a couple of songs in here that I, I immediately clocked as being kind of like Pink Floyd. Yes, and we'll get to I know the one you're talking about. about. <laughs> like, I thought it was Time by Pink Floyd. This, this was actually the first sequence that I ever saw. I think I really? caught this on TV one time, and this was the part that I saw, and I was like, I want to see the rest of this movie, <laughs> and then I regretted it. Uh, but, you know, th I, th I think this, this one is really my favorite sequence out of all of them, and I think it, I mean, not all, I mean, really, like zombie fighter pilots, that's awesome, but this really kind of harkens back to the, the fast and hard horror of things like eerie and creepy magazine you know it's just a short little vignette and it just gives you a gut punch and it's out yeah and, this is the most like like creep show of the sequences yeah and you know and also like i don't know it it's one of the few that i don't feel awkward watching mm -hmm. yeah i, I agree it, it's it's not awkwardly titillating in 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 a way that it shouldn't be it's just gross, and I love that. <laughs> but yeah, so moving on to um, the next sequence, which is titled So Beautiful and So Dangerous. Do you want to take this one? I suppose I can. I mean, this is one where, like, uh, the Pentagon is ha holding a meeting about all of these, um, like, weird mutations and things going on because of the Lochnar. And, like, the one guy who's who is trying to, like, calm everybody down about this turns out to be a robot doctor and he is so uh see i i'm not i don't feel good about explaining this because i don't think i quite understood it um I'll, i think the most important thing is that they the aliens take up a lady uh who has big boobs and the uh lochnar as a brooch and yeah, the, the Lochnar base, the Lochnar makes robots motorboat women. That's what happens. Here. <laughs> yeah, that's really where it goes. And then her and a robot have off-screen robot sex, and some aliens uh, do coke. 
yeah, like, this is the one that has like most of the SCTV people in it. Like John Candy plays the robot. The Army General's voiced by Joe Flaherty. Uh, one of the reporters and one of the other aliens is Eugene Levy. The other, uh, the other, other alien is Harold Ramis. <laughs> and <laughs> the robot that has sex with the lady is, is like again John Candy. And it's at this point in the film where I realized John Candy has more sex in this movie than like any other film of his combined. And that's wild. I say good for him. You know, get it how you live, John Candy, but, you know. He's an international treasure. Why did it have to be heavy metal? <laughs> hey, he was in um, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and Home Alone, so I think uh, by the transitive property, that makes this a Christmas episode. Yeah, because this this would come before Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is Thanksgiving, which comes before Christmas, and that's Home Alone. So, yeah, you're right. Damn it. Ugh. <laughs> hate everything. <laughs> but also, this sequence has a lot of music in it. Yes. So uh, let's just go through them one by one. The first of which is uh, Queen Bee by Grand Funk Railroad. Let's go to a clip. Ian has some thoughts on Queen Bee. I have some totally off-the-cuff observations about this one, which is that this song is not really any kind of wonderful from this American band. Minimal locomotion here. <laughs> but yeah, they, from what I was reading, the, the band had just been through a nasty breakup and they were kind of like fractured and reforming. It's like their producer was making them do this. So uh, I think this was uh, kind of not necessarily 100% maximum effort on their part. But the song's still I, okay. I can tell. Yeah, I mean it's it's like light FM Iron Maiden, which is fine. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like a fake song. Like this isn't a real song, is it? This sounds it sounds fake. Uh, this it's hard for me to comprehend that like actual adult humans in a real band wrote this. <laughs> it's really dumb. I mean, it would almost make more sense if the the heavy metal people went to Grand Funk and said, hey, we have this song called Queen Bee. Could you record it, please? Yes. And then why Grand Funk Railroad? Homer Simpson likes Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah. And they made this movie for people like Homer Simpson. I know. But this is just uh, it's a dumb, bad song. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, This is playing in the, the, the initial part of the sequence before the aliens do their abduction. When the aliens do their abduction, that's when we get the next song, which is Cheap Tricks, I Must Be Dreaming. I have some thoughts on this one. It's a little closer to metal. Uh, and then it's got like that synthy dad rock kind of way. But this really is as though like your dad band watched uh, Tron and took mushrooms. <laughs> this is the music for like the knockoff version of Space Mountain at Six Flags over Binghamton, New York. Oh, no. <laughs> This is like if your if your stepdad heard Megadeth and said, "Yeah, I can shred. I know how to shred." <laughs> so what what we're saying is this cheap trick song ain't it, guys? No, 
This is a bad dumb song. This is this is painful. Yeah. It's weird and awkward and painful. Yeah. Sorry, Sean Ryan. I feel I don't know why I feel like I owe him an apology, but here we are. Now, I know all of you plays somewhere in here, but we couldn't find it. I know it it must because that's it's like the very next note that I have. Mm-hmm. So all of you is the song that comes next, and it's where I guess that's where the girl gets abducted. She gets abducted by the alien trucker people and she winds up on the ship. And that's, and then all of you is playing while she like gets up and walks around. Yeah. I guess the part that sounds like Pink Floyd's time is uh, yeah. all of you. Let's, let's go to a clip. Let's do it. I've got to live on. Yeah, the, the one note I wrote for all of you was, uh-oh, Don Felder forgot what band he was and wandered into the Pink Floyd studio. <laughs> it's legit. Yeah, that was all I could think of. Is like, this is this is your stepdad playing Pink Floyd. Yep, and it's, it's a scene, it's a, a song in a scene where like, oh man, it's so trippy, right? Space and aliens and trucking, like, hey, <laughs> we're going to be working in space soon and it's going to suck. So this let's is- just like, let's just zone out and listen to Pink Floyd. Yeah, this is played at the planetarium that's not like the other planetariums. <laughs> this is the planetarium that couldn't afford actual Pink Floyd. <laughs> Their laser light show is just a laser pointer. They have an exhibit of robots doing cocaine on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so they have the off-screen robot sex, which the uh, the Wikipedia entry is very adamant about. They're like, they have s- robot sex, which has its own link, and I don't want to look at it. Uh, it says, albeit off screen, like, oh, thank God. I was worried there might be sexual content in this um, film. <laughs> but she's saying, like, robot sex. I've never had anything like it. Um, have you ever, never been to Toys in Babeland? <laughs> not lately. And, you know, look, I'm not here to kink shame anybody. But if we're talking about sex, they're looking at pictures of sex robots. Uh, but uh, seriously, if we look at this robot, he is really one of the least sexy robots. I mean, that's a lot of hard edges. Well, okay. So who would be the sexiest robot? Like, who'd be a robot that you'd want to see his dork? Uh, I can't answer that question. Data from Star Trek. I think C-3PO can get it. Okay. All right. Um, You're not going to play ball, are you? No, I'm thinking. Give me a minute. <laughs> Trying to think of robots. Uh, my answer is Calculon, by the way. Okay. All right. Uh, so moving on, we got more songs in this weird robot sex sequence. Like, why is this one of the ones that has all the songs? I don't know. So that you know what to you know put on when your robot lady comes over. I guess, yeah. When I'm making out with my Marilyn Monroe bot. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I walked into that. <laughs> I'm ashamed of myself, but proud of you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so yeah, John Candy Robot is still getting it. <laughs> and the next song on our soundtrack is uh, Trust playing Prefabricated. So let's go to it. I'm not upset by the way I am. Damn, the only answer is to lie. Of the fool and make him cry. Make him cry. 
The only thing I know about Trust is that they're from France, which I believe is where the magazine is from, right, Ian? Austin? <laughs> Correct. See, now this sounds like metal. This is like Big Van Halen drums. It's got that like that big, sloppy, meaningless power metal. It's just yeah. loud and meaningless. Yeah, and the only, th the only thing I know about Trust is that Anthrax covers their song Antisocial. Okay, see? That's all I got. That's metal legitimate, so these, they're bona fide. Yeah. And I, on my notes, I called this uh, some grade B plus shredding going on here. Yes, indeed. It's fine. Yeah. It's kind of too bad that this one didn't, for instance, get the, the single because this actually sounds like metal. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is a little more like they kind of understood the assignment. Yeah. Not as much as Blue Oyster called. Well, no, but who does? Who does? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, the, the girl and the robot, uh, he. <laughs> He wants to marry her, but on one condition, he wants a Jewish wedding. Yeah, she wants a Jewish wedding, and she wants to know if he's circumcised. Oh, she wants a Jewish wedding. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> so and then scary. she asks the robot if he's circumcised, and then that's kind of where it cuts. Yeah. And he balks at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like, I mean, on one hand, how would you circumcise a robot? But on the other hand, it's like, you know, he's, he's the one that proposes his head over heels. It's just like... Come on, guy. You, you do what you got to do. And this one was, I mean, there's the guy that, like, you know, tries to sexually assault her. But from there on out, it's a pretty nice little story. It's just, like, a, about a lady and a robot who fall in love and some other robots who are up a bunch of cocaine. Yeah, and, like, the story ends with them, like, crashing their spaceship into, like, a giant space station. Yeah, but, like, nobody gets hurt. And you're like, okay, well, nobody got, like, murdered with a sword or... Yeah, it's yeah. not really dangerous. Yeah, it's actually like you look at it, you're like, this is the nicest story. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's pretty like it's al it's almost wholesome if it weren't for all the robot sex yeah. <laughs> and the drugs. Well, okay, sure, space drugs. <laughs> and they're just like, let's do all the drugs. They're just like, do you want to do some drugs? And I'm like, yeah, let's do all of them. Yeah, and it was like fire hoses worth of drugs. So essentially, I think the, the Don Felder track makes sense here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Eagles did also did fire hoses worth of drugs. That is true. And hey, we, uh, we can't we can't let this sequence in without mentioning Sammy Hagar. Oh, yeah. That's the second <laughs> run on this show. Yeah. Sammy Hagar with the, the, the title track, Heavy Metal. Let's go to it. Hagar song and say like is this heavy metal and I'd be like yeah sure it's heavy metal from the 1981 film heavy metal it's yeah. like the heavy metal that's trying really hard it's like there's a line in here it's something like can you feel the rage but the way it's delivered there's no rage anywhere <laughs> he's so. probably still mad he can't drive 55 oh yeah yeah that national speed limit that was a real bummer <laughs> yeah which was written about 70 miles from where we live it's true oh wow really yeah it was written on the drive that's... from Albany to Lake Placid Wow. Mm -hmm. But for most yeah, Sammy Hagar enjoys metal too much to be mad about anything. Yeah, he just seems like a, again, like a D. Snyder type who's just like, I'm just rocking out real hard. I just want to party and drink tequila. 
he's like he's like literally the heavy metal Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. Yes. And I think this is a good point. It's fine. I don't I don't dislike it at all. It's just it's Sammy Hagar. Yeah, it rocks. It it understands the assignment. It's having fun. It's having a good time. It's drinking tequila. It's partying yeah. with chicks with big boobs. Big robot chicks with big robot boobs. Yeah. And yeah, the the spaceship crashes into the the the, the um space station but not you know in a way that kills anybody they just kind of careen into it and bam they're done we're done with the sequence and we can move on to let's see tarna tarna to tarna the big finale the one that's on the cover of the movie and coincidentally the the only seek the only full sequence that was written specifically for the movie oh see that makes a lot of sense now because the rest of it so far has just kind of felt like uh, like almost like sketch comedy. And now this is like a real movie. <laughs> so do you want to give a brief history of uh, the story that loosely takes place? Okay, so, uh, so it's, it's, it, it was really interesting kind of watching the Tarna sequence um, because the animation seemed to improve. Like it still looks the same, but that sort of weird weightlessness that I mentioned before seems largely gone here. And I mean, you know, it still like lingers and is very gratuitous, but it, it seems to understand basic concepts of weight and gravity. Um, and this sequence was uh, modeled after um, the comic Arzak by Mobius. Uh, and if you're familiar with Mobius's work, uh, this this absolutely drips uh, of his art style, especially in the backgrounds. Um, he's just got really deft, exquisite line work, um, and very kind of organic costumes. I'm not so much talking about Tarna, but like the other ones, you know, they look like they have bowling pin hats on and, and, you know, these, the pterodactyl thing that she's riding is, you know, very kind of plump and, and fleshy. Um, you know, these actually, Arzak, who this is based off of, rides a very similar creature, um, and considering that Mobius was one of the original founders of the uh, Metal Hurlant uh, magazine in 77, it makes sense that they would have this sequence based on his work. So, yeah, this one uh, opens with, again, one of our other very few metal tracks. Uh, we got Black Sabbath uh, with The Mob Rules, which actually plays as a mob is just absolutely wrecking shit. Let's go to a clip. Now, here's, here's another song that really sounds like it could have been a Queen song. <laughs> like Queen in their, like, um, like Highlander, Flash Gordon kind of phase. Okay. But but then, but then you know, Ronnie James Dio comes in and just wrecks the house. <laughs> and so, like, well, I, I guess if, if we didn't get Freddie Mercury, Ronnie James Dio is, is a perfectly fine substitute. <laughs> I'll take him. I feel like... I like this one a lot. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's such a shortage of actual metal on this soundtrack that... You almost have to like this one, <laughs> just because yeah. it's here and representing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this was uh, their first uh, album after Ozzy left. So with with Ronnie James Dio taking over lead vocals. 
So it's a new era. For right, and this is also the same, like the same year that Ozzy broke big with his his uh, solo yes uh, career. Yes. So Black Sabbath definitely has something to prove at this point. And mm-hmm. Bringing in Ryan James Dio, it makes total sense. Yeah, and I, uh, I, I think they prove it here. I'm not, oh, absolutely. I'm not huge on Black Sabbath, but I think this song, you know, is for that you know late '70s, early '80s metal. Uh, definitely is one of the game changers. Oh yeah, absolutely. So uh, an- another. Fun fact about this is that even though the sequence was written for the the movie, uh, Tarnas' theme was not. Uh, Tarnas' theme was written by Elmer Bernstein and was actually a theme that he wrote for a little cult movie called Saturn Three, which came out in 1980 and oh. featured Farrah Fawcett, uh, Kirk Douglas, and Harvey Keitel. And... Uh, he uh, he had this music, and they're like, nah, we're not going to use it. And so he just dropped it right into this movie. Saturn 3, interestingly enough, another movie featuring, I believe, maybe not robot sex, but certainly robot lust. <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting <laughs> film. I highly recommend it if you're really bored. <laughs> I could be really bored. <laughs> I could also be really bored. What are y'all doing after this? <laughs> Stop it all. <laughs> enough um yeah so essentially they summon uh tarna and she has to swim nude across a pool and uh wearing what apparently is her combat merkin (laughs) (laughs) like yeah like did we need like a long lingering shot of tarna putting on her like battle armor yeah it takes her so fucking long that the entire civilization is wiped out (laughs) Yeah. Dying by the thousands. Imagine if you just took a little long, a little time getting ready for work and you got there and everyone was dead. What's the matter, Joe? Don't appreciate the female form? Isn't it worth people dying? Listen, we have 90 minutes of plot here and we're wasting 10 of them on this. <laughs> really? Do we have 90 minutes of plot? Is it really plot? Plot? <laughs> this is what I paid a dollar for. <laughs> I waited 25 years to finally watch this, okay? <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> but um, your dad would be proud. Yeah, yeah. But um, we actually get a song that's not on the soundtrack here, uh, played in a bar where Tarna goes to do, you know, fantasy barbarian lady shit. Uh, I don't remember what the song is called. Through being cool by Devo. Yes, we see Space Devo in the bar. We're not going to go yeah. to the clip because it's not on the soundtrack, but it's kind of a neat little song. And it, and it's at this point like you you get a lot of that kind of like incestuous sci-fi stuff that kind of feeds into each other because like there's so much Star Wars in this sequence yeah it's, it's unreal yeah it's Mos Eisley but with yep. you know blood and tits of course so yeah they torture Tarna of course because they have to they're like bring me my whips and Ian's making jerk off motions <laughs> Ian which, Austin yeah I yeah. <laughs> um, and then. <laughs> They kill her, they stab her bird, and she eventually, like, stabs a guy and punches him, and they fly into a volcano, and she destroys the Lochnar. Hooray! Yeah, we but, no, we're not, but no, we're not done yet. Oh, Christ. <laughs> the, the epilogue, where we get back to the Lochnar telling these stories to this poor little girl, and the, she finally escapes the house, the Lochnar explodes, destroys the house, too. 
And then oh, we oh, finally just, see... Just a quick note on that house exploding. Yes. Uh, it is the only sequence in the movie that isn't animated. I noticed that. Yeah, like they rotoscoped a house exploding. Well, yeah, they uh, they they were they were in the process of doing it, but they moved up the release date, and they didn't have time to animate a rotoscoped exploding house, so they just built a miniature and filmed it exploding <laughs> and, and put it in there. Wow. It's, it, it reminds me of like the, the later scenes in Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings where they, they just ran out of money. So they put guys in suits and like like negatively exposed the, the film. And like that's that's your animation for those scenes. Like, yeah. Just go just do it. We got to put this movie in theaters. And really, if you think about it, Ralph Bakshi is kind of the reason this exists, because his films, Fritz the Cat, um, Coonskin and uh, some others started to make adult animation acceptable and you know it went from having to see these in very limited run theaters to actually becoming some top grossing and top regarded uh animated films for adults um and so really this this is on ralph bakshi he knows what he did Wait, I mean, I, that's, that's not to be taken lightly. I mean, this was the highest grope, grossing, high, highest groping, groping too. <laughs> <laughs> this was the highest groping. <laughs> Don't take it back. <laughs> highest grossing Canadian film uh, to that date, and it was only uh, it was only usurped the year after by the classic Porky's. Of course, yeah. <laughs> what is going on in Canada? And speaking of Canada, like I, I know, I read that um, the animation studio Novana was was approached to do a lot of the animation for this, and they turned it down because they were all they they, they decided to do Rock and Rule instead, I don't know which is that. another film that at some point we need to talk about. Okay, we <laughs> don't threaten us. <laughs> hey, it also has Cheap Trick and it has Blondie in it, so you know. Uh... Although, although that being said. Uh... Gerald Potterson, who was one of the animators on this, he also worked on the Beatles' Yellow Submarine. Oh, okay. You know, so, you know, we can we can say, like, some of it doesn't really, you know, look that great. But at the same time, it's like these were these were people who had been around and they knew what they were doing. Right. These were experienced animators at, at very least, you know, but at the same time, it's like we're in that weird middle ground of, you know, again, where the, you know, cartoons were primarily for children. Um, you know, the only thing that I could think of is stuff like Ralph Bakshi or, uh, you know, Fritz the Cat had come out, you know, several years earlier. Um, but, you know, things like uh, things like Akira hadn't hit America yet. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the game hadn't really changed. So this is kind of that weird kind of free floating area where, hey, you know what, cartoons they might be for adults, too. We'll just put some boobs in there. You know, people will love it. And, <laughs> you know, for, for better or worse, in this case, worse. But, you know, this is this is all part of the growing process. I guess. The growing pains of adult animation. Yes. Oh, I'm. But yeah. So the last scene is that um, the girl uh in the framing device becomes uh tarno reborn and flies off on the resurrected bird i was glad that bird is okay yeah thank god for that and then she she takes off into the sky and then to take us into the end credits we have the one song we haven't talked about yet it's devo with their cover of working in the coal mine yeah, let's go to a let's do it <laughs> 
this necessary? Maybe it was the uh, way of the people saying their feelings on having worked on the movie. Like maybe they were just so you know under underpaid, overworked, and just sick of their deadlines that they're like, yeah, let's just spend whatever money we have left on having Devo cover a you know ancient old Lee Dorsey song. I love this song. I really, I don't know why it's in the movie. I have no idea. It has nothing to do with anything, but it's so slick and it's so weird. And it's so yeah, funny. And like this podcast history with Devo covers, hey, they were in nine and a half weeks covering um, bread and butter. So it's like, welcome back, guy. Yeah, Devo's <laughs> our go to for weird shit covers. The only thing covered in that movie. <laughs> I don't know if you heard. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you heard him. But yeah, that's that's uh that's heavy metal, everybody. We get working in we don't have anything to say about working in the coal mine. It's a weird ass cover. We like it a lot. It's huh. yeah. well, it's just delightful yeah. and does not deserve this. It it deserves a better movie for sure. I found uh, I found an LA Times review of this movie, which for me really sums it up. It says it was the most expensive adolescent fantasy revenge fulfillment wet dream ever to slither onto the screen. Oh, God. And that is just feels so accurate to me. And it's funny because, yeah, it's adult animation. It feels like it was made for teen boys, but it has a soundtrack for your dad. <laughs> well, I mean, that makes it makes a lot of sense because my dad was the one trying to get me to watch it. And I, it's probably because he liked all the music in the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's heavy metal. Yeah, it's... Wow. It's a wild ride, and it's a it's a pretty good soundtrack, if I'm being honest. Yeah. A lot of it kind of runs together, but a lot of it is really... it It, it's, it really goes for it. I'll say that. And, you know, the this, this spirit of heavy metal obviously lives on in the magazines, but, you know, uh, Heavy Metal 2000 came out uh, in 2000, which uh, features its own uh, <laughs> louder and nastier soundtrack, which you may want to consider. Uh, you know, various people uh, were thinking about revising it in the early 2000s, uh, including uh, David Fincher and Paramount. Um, in 2011, Robert Rodriguez bought the rights to make it, uh, and in 2014, he even said that he wanted to switch it from a movie to a series, and that series uh, eventually became the Netflix show Love, Death, and Robots, which has already won two Emmys. So you know, uh, wow, yeah. So it, it's 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 still out there in in many different forms, but uh, you can find it. And it should be noted, we should have mentioned this at the top, longtime heavy metal uh, cover artist Julie Strain uh, actually died earlier this year after a long battle with dementia following a uh, uh, equestrian Aww. accident. Yeah. Damn. So, um, I remember Ian pointed that out. He's like, oh, chick from heavy metal died. So she was a longtime cover model and provided the uh, voice for the character in Heavy Metal 2000. Wow. Yeah. Rest in peace. She was, a, she was beautiful. She's a, you know penthouse uh girl of the month warrior woman yeah she was she was a good looking woman and again (laughs) was married to uh kevin eastman (laughs) oh okay well uh yeah so final thoughts on the album the film anything anybody wants to throw out there what's good on heavy metal is great what's terrible is really bad uh this one i think is is middling the album is definitely better than the film yeah i'd like to echo that sentiment i think that um 
It was a, a good experience to listen through. Um, this is the second time I've ever had to watch the movie, and I, I'm using the word had on purpose there. Um, but, uh, yeah, a movie doesn't hold up. Soundtrack kind of does. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much where I come down on it, too. Like, I can at least appreciate, like, where it came from and the era in which it was produced, but uh, it's 2021 right now, and times have changed, unfortunately. <laughs> no, you know what? It's a good thing that times have changed. <laughs> It's definitely a good thing. But, you know, heavy metal is what it is. Take it home, Ian. Oh, just, I've made my thoughts clear <laughs> on this. I mean, I can't watch this and I, I mean, and, and feel clean afterwards. It's just it just sits weird. I'm embarrassed to watch it with people and alone. <laughs> and you know what? I haven't listened to the soundtrack. So <laughs> I have it on vinyl. Although Ian did do my uh, Tarna photo shoot, so he was very gracious about doing that. There you go. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for the OST party this week. Libby, what are we doing next week? Next week, in honor of the announcement that we are finally, finally, finally getting History of the World Part 2, we are going to count down our favorite songs from Mel Brooks movies. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. I know. It's going to be exciting. Yes. Oh, boy. Well, uh, the Ians, thank you so much for joining us this week. I had a great time talking about heavy metal with you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. Well, I mean, Ian, Ian, you live here. (laughs) (laughs) Your house. Okay. Well, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. You can find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Uh, And you can catch up with our final few episodes of the Shattered Shield podcast over at uh, at Shield Shattered. Ian, where uh, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at I am Austin Arts or at the underscore corroded underscore lens joe where can they find you they can find me on uh, instagram or twitter at cordial wombat or can hear me on the christmas creeps podcast at christmas creeps where we yell about christmas movies all year round we're gearing up for the holiday season and we've got some fun stuff planned great it's gonna be a ride (laughs) um and then the ost party you can send us anything you want to twitter at ost party or email us Questions, comments, suggestions at ostpartypod at gmail.com. Do all that fun stuff. Let friends know about the show. We really appreciate it, and we're glad you're listening. Um, So, yeah, that's going to do it for the OST Party. So, for the OST Party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride.